Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today I was pleased to interview Professor Neil Ferguson, a founding trustee of the University of Austin, Previously, he was a professor of history at Harvard, New York University, and Oxford. We chatted about the state of the broken higher education system today. Can it be fixed? Why should people care? We discussed whether or not students and professors are really afraid to speak their minds, the economics of a university education, and so much more about higher education. I think you'll find it eye-opening. Take a listen to Professor Ferguson. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So delighted to be joined today by Professor Neil Ferguson, a founding trustee of the University of Austin. Professor, you penned an op-ed in Bloomberg entitled, I'm helping to start a new college because higher ed is broken. You describe how institutions dedicated to the search for truth have ossified into havens for liberal intolerance and administrative overreach. How did we get here? It's a good question because it happened quite rapidly. And I think for anybody who hasn't had dealings with the university in the past five years, there may be skepticism. Because when I first started teaching at Harvard, which I guess was 2006, uh, these strange pathologies were far less evident. They certainly weren't evident when I taught at Oxford and Cambridge in the 1990s. So it feels as if in a relatively short space of time, a couple of things have happened. One, free speech has itself been cancelled. The extent to which norms, political and other norms, are policed uh, on campuses is truly breathtaking to the point that as multiple surveys have shown, students don't feel able to speak their mind in class or indeed on campus. And professors uh, feel uh, increasingly fearful of denunciation for wrong think, to use Orwellian language, or hate speech, which is a, a new term for blasphemy or heresy. The second thing that's happened in a relatively short space of time is that university administrations have become so bloated, non-academic staff have become so numerous and powerful that uh, it feels as if they run the institution. That's been revealed very clearly by COVID, incidentally, where you see this extraordinary overreach by administrators creating cumbersome and often absurd rules because they can. And this is a very bad combination because on the one side you have people who are willing, students or others who are willing to sort of denounce their contemporaries or their professors. And then on the other side, you have an administration, a kind of bureaucratic structure that's ready to act on those denunciations because, well, what else is a diversity, equity and inclusion officer going to do all day if there's nobody to investigate? So I'm glad you said five years, because I have to tell you, I have six kids and about six or so years ago, 
I had to research colleges for them. They're triplets, my oldest. And reading as much as I've been reading over the past couple of years, I wondered if I was asleep at the switch. I knew, of course, that some campuses were overly critical of the state of Israel, you know, little nuanced things like that. But the the cancel culture, the um, administrative overreach, the liberal intolerance, I don't think I noticed six years ago, or maybe I didn't pay attention. Is it really that new, you know, five or so years? I think it is. I mean, if you look at some of the research that's done by Heterodox Academy uh, or FIRE, Greg Lukianoff's uh, organization for preserving academic freedom, uh, the data showed this great surge starting five or six years ago in cancellations, disinvitations, and, and broadly incidents relating to academic freedom. So the time frame is is a surprisingly short one. In a book that they published a few years ago, The Coddling of the American Mind, John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff made this point. And, and so I think it's, it's critical to underline that we're not talking here about the political correctness of the 1990s or 2000s, but something different, uh, something much more aggressive and something much more chilling in its effect on behavior, speech, uh, and uh, debate at universities. I remember leaving Harvard in 2016 and moving to Stanford. And in that last year of teaching at Harvard, I'd become aware that there were just a kind of series of things chilling the atmosphere, but it was just, it was just becoming an issue. My wife, Ayan Hersey Ali, had been disinvited by Brandeis, having been invited as a commencement speaker around about that time. So we were starting to feel it. But at that point, the number of such events was small, and it didn't seem likely to become the dominant feature of academic life. By 2018 at Stanford, I was under sustained attack, uh, not least for trying to start a free speech initiative. And by then I realized that something had changed and it had changed for the worse. A combination of woke students, a minority, I think on almost every campus, overzealous administrators and left-leaning faculty had uh, produced a, a really, I think, unpleasant atmosphere. And that's the thing that ultimately makes me feel that we need to create some new institutions because it's very difficult to undo these things and roll back these uh, these tendencies once they're institutionalized. Sometimes it's trivial stuff, like everybody being obliged to announce their preferred pronouns at the beginning of, of meetings. But I think more seriously and insidiously, it's a culture of denunciation that there's almost reminiscent of an authoritarian regime in Eastern Europe in the Cold War. People inform on their professors or they inform on their classmates. This I'm not making up. The evidence is very clear. A, students feel that they must carefully self-censor. B, professors worry. And C, there are numerous cases where people's lives become intolerable. Uh, Peter Bogosian, who's one of our founding faculty fellows at the University of Austin, was essentially forced out of his job at Portland State. And what was his sin? 
well, he participated in a, an elaborate hoax exposing the fraudulence of the scholarship at a number of supposedly academic journals by getting them to publish fake uh, papers that he and two co-authors had, had written. This then led to an investigation uh, into his supposed uh, research uh, ethics, but it was obviously a, a political hit. And case after case after case of such political hits made me conclude that the existing institutions were not likely to self-repair in, in a time frame that was was short enough, hence the need for new institutions. And, and you mentioned this invitation, and sorry about what happened to your wife. Another good example would be Dorian Abbott, who I interviewed for this podcast yeah. not too long ago, where just for the benefit of my listeners, MIT had invited Dorian to give a lecture some faculty members and grad students and even some outside the school argued that Dr. Abbott had created harm by speaking out against aspects of affirmative action and diversity and that he represented an infuriating, inappropriate, and oppressive choice. So um, let me ask you, is this really what the majority of student want? students want? Is this why parents pay all this tuitions? Do the administrators of these schools think that this type of culture is actually a good thing? Well, clearly they do. The problem is that universities create codes of conduct, rules about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and these then empower bureaucrats. And when a case like Dorian Abbott uh, comes along, and I'm glad to say he will also be a founding faculty fellow at uh, the University of Austin, there is a kind of bias in, in favour of safety, and that's one of the terms I've come to, to dread, and against academic freedom. Now, a generation ago, you would not have cancelled a lecturer at MIT because a lecturer on geophysics happened to have more conservative views on affirmative action than the median academic, because what on earth do his views on affirmative action have to do with the content of the lecture he was going to give? Nothing. In the same way, uh, when uh, Charles Murray was invited to the Stanford campus, there was a great uh, brouhaha because uh, of objections to his book, many years old now, The Bell Curve, even although he had come to talk about a much more recent book, uh, Coming Apart. The, the trouble is that if you allow a whole uh, apparatus of, of bureaucrats to uh, exist, whether it's to enforce diversity, equity, and inclusion norms or Title IX, that's what they'll do. And they certainly won't prioritize academic freedom because nobody told them to do that. Universities uh, have forgotten the the nature of their function, as far as I can see. Uh, what they should be doing is giving young people access to the full range of accumulated knowledge of, uh, of the human species, and they should be places where free thinking, a free discussion, the right to make mistakes, which you do when you're young, actually, you do it when you're old too, all of those things are protected. Why else would you give people three or four years in a special environment cut off from market forces where they can study and interact with older, more experienced scholars? 
The idea that the university is there to impose some kind of orthodoxy belongs to a previous era. You have to go back uh, to before the 19th century, to the time when religious tests were standard at universities, to find universities as enforcers of orthodoxy. What's ironic is it's people on the left who've decided that universities should not be places of free inquiry and discussion, but places where an orthodoxy is imposed. They don't seem to realize that they're turning the clock back uh, to the 1700s, if not earlier. Highly ironic. Uh, And to that point, you said in your Bloomberg op-ed that there was a general agreement that the central purpose of a university was the pursuit of truth, and the crucial means to that end were freedom of conscience, thought, speech, and publication. It sounds like we are terribly off course here, and we're creating, we are creating a generation of uh, closed-minded people. What is the impact to the United States, or frankly, any country where this problem exists, uh, to the future, to the future leaders, political leaders, business leaders, parents? It cannot be healthy if our elite, and the elite goes through the elite universities, is programmed not to engage in critical thinking, uh, but instead to be constrained by ideologies like critical race theory. The word critical here has taken on a kind of perverse uh, Orwellian function that, that is almost the opposite of its original sense. If you don't understand that the central function of the scientific method is to question hypotheses, to challenge them and to try to falsify them, then you've missed the whole point of about 300 years of, uh, of scientific inquiry. I worry that what's happening is that our uh, students are being told to switch off their critical faculties. They're being taught not how to think, but what to think. And that means that they are quite unready for the challenges of uh, the 21st century and in ways that could ultimately be very harmful indeed. Richard Dawkins coined a phrase a few years back, the mind virus. And I found in conversations with some of the leading entrepreneurs of the United States a growing concern that when they hire people from major universities, they arrive with the mind virus and start to spread it through the organization. One of the motivations we have in creating a new university is that it will be vaccination against the mind virus. Uh, Ultimately, we want people to leave the University of Austin able to challenge and question any hypothesis, no matter how sacrosanct it might be, to do it civilly, to do it with evidence, with data, We want students to learn how to argue, how to debate, but I think that's not what's happening at other universities. If it was happening there, we wouldn't need uh, to do this. But what I see happening is quite the opposite process, where the thought police tell you on day one, as a freshman, these are the norms of our institution. These are the the principles that you, you actually have to commit to if you want to be part of our community. The University of California now has a test of your commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion as part of the hiring process for for faculty. You can't actually get past first base if you're not prepared to swear that you fully endorse a whole series of, of rather questionable propositions 
about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Dorian Abbott wouldn't actually have any chance of employment by the University of California system. This is not healthy. And it's especially worrying to me uh, that we are allowing these orthodoxies to be imposed when uh, they seem intellectually really quite flimsy. It's a central tenet of anti-racism that all signs of uh, disparity between racial groups must be due to systemic racism and white supremacy. I think that's historically untrue and quite easily falsifiable. But if people are told on arrival at a university, this is what you have to subscribe to, uh, and you can't challenge that, then you're taking a hugely important issue that's at the core of American history off the table, preventing any reasoned debate about it. And woe betide anybody who, who challenges the consensus on, on these issues. At Harvard, Roland Fryer's career has essentially been destroyed. I think, in reality, because he ventured to publish a paper that questioned the Black Lives Matter orthodoxy on, on the police youth use of, of lethal violence towards African Americans. What happened to him was not explicit censorship, but he was accused, I think, falsely of harassment. Uh, he then, after a process that resembled something from Kafka's The Trial, was suspended without pay for two years, which makes a mockery of the idea of tenure. Now, if you're an inquiring, challenging scholar like Roland, and you get the message that if you cross certain lines, you'll be investigated, and people will be able to bear false witness against you in processes that, by the way, have a distinctly extra legal quality to them, uh, you have uh, really two options. You can resign, leave academic life, or subordinate, submit yourself to these, these dictates. That's a ghastly state of affairs that I never thought I would see, because I had assumed naively as an historian that people find themselves in that kind of position, you know, subscribe to this self-criticism and, and, and conform in authoritarian regimes. I had never foreseen when I was writing about the authoritarian regimes of the 20th century that that kind of behavior would start to occur in the universities in what's supposed to be the world's freest society. It's, it still staggers me that people can write letters of denunciation, can bear false witness, can participate in show trials, can extract groveling apologies from people in a free society and not feel shame. Because when I see this kind of behavior, I just find myself morally revolted. And clearly, we've, we've produced a generation of people who think it's noble to inform on, on, on someone. Yeah, it's a frightening situation. I want to touch on two words from your last answer that I don't hear enough about, civility and evidence. To what degree are any colleges um, trying to train their students to speak civilly? You can disagree on so many things. Look, I had a position in the White House where it was a hot file, right? And I had to learn, or hopefully I, I knew in, uh, intuitively how to get along with all sides, even if we couldn't solve the conflict. But I think civility and evidence are thoroughly lacking today. Is that... Um, is that something the colleges care about? Not nearly enough. Part of the problem is that if a part of any academic community says, well, we believe in free speech except, or but, in other words, free speech for the things that, that we are prepared to listen to, but not for ideas that we find abhorrent, then it's extremely hard to have civil 
to bees. Uh, and, and indeed, that is something that I've witnessed. Rather than debate, people will try to shout speakers down or uh, disrupt uh, events. The, the problem is, is twofold, I think. First, a style of argument evolved on the left, and it began on the academic left. Uh, I want to make it clear that there are threats to freedom, academic freedom from the right too, and those are growing as people on the right decide to copy the tactics of the left. But this really did originate on the left. And the style of argument was as follows. Rather than engage with an argument, let us question the good faith of the person making the argument. And I, I took a while to notice this. I'd written a book uh, 20 years ago nearly about the British Empire, which shockingly didn't say that everything about it was terrible. But what was odd was that the reviews scarcely engaged with the content of the book. Indeed, one reviewer subsequently admitted that he hadn't read the book when he reviewed it. What the, the critics did was to question my good faith. The ad hominem attack became a very much more effective way of winning an argument than engaging with somebody's argument and somebody's data. So ad hominem arguments began to become a, a preferred mode of attack gradually over the last 20 years. The second thing, which I think explains the timing of all of this, was the rise of social media. In the space of a relatively few years, uh, after around, let's say, 2010, the social media platforms became a critical part of the public sphere. And whether on Facebook or on, on Twitter or on other platforms, it became possible to use ad hominem arguments uh, to form mobs online and, and go after people very aggressively. That, that's, I think, one reason why we have seen all of this become much, much more of a problem in, in the relatively recent past, because it took a while for people to realize, oh, we can use these styles of argument going after people's good faith and their personalities really effectively online and cancel people, which is a shorthand for uh, discrediting them or even getting them taken offline altogether. That, that's, I think, a really important part of the story because it's not all about universities. I think universities are the place where this manifests itself most clearly because they're places where young people, for the first time in their lives, have some autonomy. And as Lukianov and Haidt argue in The, the Coddling of the American Mind, People used to kind of leave home and go to university and be treated as adults for the first time, albeit inexperienced adults. That was certainly how Oxford treated me in the 1980s. Now, uh, they're treated as children when they get to universities and offered surrogate parenting by university administrations. And when that parenting includes, oh, and by the way, you mustn't say this and you mustn't say that, and certain things are hate speech and that that's something we, we won't stand for, then, then, of course, you don't get a culture of debate. You get a culture of cancellation. Let's talk dollars and cents. Uh, you've said that the economics of colleges seem completely weird because nothing has gone up more in price in the U.S. than tuition at, at colleges. I'm not sure people actually realize that. Could we talk about that for a couple of minutes? It's a remarkable thing. I, I, Americans are unaware of how much cheaper a university education is elsewhere. It's crazily expensive here. And the cost of tuition has soared in the last 20 or so years, even as the cost of other things has declined. And there aren't that many things that have gone up as much as, as college tuition. What's happened? Well, I think what's happened has been that 
The economics of getting the credential haven't changed. If anything, the pressure has grown to try to get a degree from as highly ranked an institution as possible. The universities, in competing for the best academic talent, as well as the best athletic talent, which I sometimes think they care about more, have uh, spent more and more money on fancy facilities, uh, come here, look at our stadium, and, uh, of course, have increased their costs. They've added tier upon tier of administration, as I mentioned earlier. That has also driven up the cost. And then uh, the problem of how to pay for it all was semi-solved with student loans, which have, of course, been one of the great financial disasters of the last two decades. Uh, so a generation has been saddled with debts for degrees that turn out, in many cases, not to be worth the paper that are printed on. And that is, I think, a short summary of the strange economics of American higher education. I don't think higher education should be free, uh, but it, it, it really shouldn't cost fifty or $60,000 a year. And uh, one of our firm commitments at the University of Austin is, uh, is to undercut the competition and be significantly cheaper than the elite institutions because we just don't think, and this is a point our president, Pano Canelos, has has made. We just don't think there's any justification for these these bloated uh, tuition fees. So let's talk about the University of Austin. And besides tackling the economic problem that we just described, what are the other ways that the University of Austin is going to try to tackle all these things that we've just discussed, which I think are really terrible for our country? Well, we're a startup. We had the idea to create a new university in May of last year. We launched in November because Clearly, to do this, we need to raise money. I don't happen to have the money to found a university on me. We have now raised a significant sum of money. We are now in a position to acquire the land on which to build the campus. Uh, but it's early days, and we have a lot of work to do in reimagining university. I don't think we're just about going back to some vanished golden age. I think our, our goal is to create a new kind of university and in doing so, to make sure that the mind virus doesn't find a way in, uh, but rather to come up with graduate and undergraduate programs that, that will be superior intellectually to what is on offer at the legacy institutions. A good example of how I think we can uh, do this is just in the way that we structure an undergraduate program. The model we have in mind will uh, be very broad in the initial first uh, and second year, making sure that, that students meaningfully cover a broad range of different disciplines. And even if they want to be computer scientists, they study some history, philosophy, and literature, uh, and vice versa. Even if they want to study history, they understand how computer science works. And then in the third and fourth years, there'll be a significant practical problem-solving aspect uh, to the education that we're offering. One of the great defects of, of the modern university is that it's siloed into departments which are sovereign or semi-sovereign. And uh, these silos are not, in fact, conducive uh, to original and innovative thinking. Uh, we want to have an interdisciplinary culture in which uh, a problem is solved with uh, input from more than one field. So it will be a very different kind of program that we build. And I think the structure of, of the university will not be like the structure of the standard university, there will not be departments. There will not be an all-powerful faculty that can sit in its silo determining 
the form of groupthink that new members have to subscribe to. As I said, it's a startup. And when we launched, I was uh, impressed, though not surprised by the amount of negative uh, feedback, not to say snark, that we got. Nothing defends itself as tenaciously as a bad system that knows its time is up. And the, the, the extent of the hostility, not just from academics, but also from journalists who seem to have some strange emotional stake in the status quo, is just amazing when you consider how broken the status quo is. But that's just a sign of, of I think, of the, of the diseased uh, nature of, of the establishment, which means there's a huge opportunity here. People, when they first heard about the University of Austin, were emailing us in their thousands, students emailing us to say, when can I sign up? And really amazingly, uh, around 5,000 professors saying, when can I come and teach at the University of Austin? There's an enormous pent-up demand for meaningful intellectual freedom. The smartest students want it, uh, and so do the most ambitious professors. So if we build this, albeit initially on a modest scale, I have no doubt at all that it will succeed because it's so desperately needed. And everybody who really knows what's going on in higher education, who, who's actually been paying attention, knows that it's needed too. What made you choose Austin? Well, there's already quite a lot of uh, universities in California and in Massachusetts. Uh, there are probably way too many universities in New England, and some of them will close down and in the years ahead. Uh, by contrast, uh, Austin has the University of Texas at Austin and not a lot else. And yet at the same time, it's a rapidly growing hub for technology and other business because uh, there are people who have had enough of California and are moving their businesses there. Uh, Joe Lonsdale, who's uh, one of our founding trustees, uh, was the, the first to put money down to make this happen. Uh, there are a significant number of, of people like him, venture capitalists, who've relocated to Austin. And uh, it wouldn't have escaped your notice that that Elon Musk has moved uh, a Tesla's headquarters there too. So it, it's clearly a, a boomtown, and it's not going to stop being a boomtown. Uh, you want to build uh, your university near a boomtown. The University of Chicago is a good illustration of this. You know, it's worth saying, Jason, that 100 years ago, it wasn't really... Uh, something you had to argue about if if there was uh, a place, whether it was the Northern California, which didn't have that many universities, or Chicago in the late 19th century, you, you create a new university. It just wasn't a debate about it. You did it. The US used to be really good at creating new institutions when people made a lot of money. This was what they did. And we kind of stopped doing that in the last 20 years. And I regard the University of Austin as part of the US doing what it's always done well, but kind of stopped doing, which is create new institutions where they're needed and when they're needed. So we're, we're you know, in a way we're doing for Austin what the University of Chicago did uh, for the Midwest in the late 19th century when it was booming. Are donors generally oblivious to what's going on on college campuses? And if so, what's your message to today's donors? There are a lot of very shrewd people who've made a great deal of money in business, whether in Wall Street or technology or somewhere else, who, when they give money to their alma mater, switch their brains off, uh, cease to do the kind of due diligence that they would do for any business deal. It's a remarkable thing. Took me a while to believe it was happening, but I've seen up close that donors do not do anything like enough scrutiny on how their money is going to be spent and how it's subsequently 
is spent. And when they try to, as I can think of at least one case recently at Yale, when they try to say, hey, you're not doing what we said, then they get denounced uh, by the academic bureaucracy, which feels it has an unlimited right to do whatever it likes with the money that is is given to it. So I, I think there is a, a really odd problem here, which people like uh, ACTA, the associate, Association of uh, what is it, college trustees, I'm probably getting this wrong. I mean, there are organizations trying to get this message across, but but it's hard uh, because I think part of what happens is people make it and they think, you know, what I really need just to signal to my contemporaries how big, how well I've done and how big my success has been is a building at Harvard with my name on it. And when you start thinking in those terms about philanthropy, you've already you've already gone wrong. Far, far better to give money to an institution that needs it than to one that clearly doesn't need it. Harvard does not need more money. If Harvard has too much money, that's part of the reason that it has all kinds of weird uh, propensities these days, because they can afford to have a monstrous regiment of deans coming up with ludicrous policies, whether it's on COVID or on diversity. So I think American uh, billionaires, uh, I'm talking to you, need to get get with the program and realize that by the standards of their predecessors in the Gilded Age in the late 19th century, they're doing a shocking job. If Andrew Carnegie could see today's billionaires, he would be appalled at the way they waste their money. Last question. Parents, students uh, looking for colleges today, what rocks should they be turning over? What should they be thinking about? What's your advice? Well, the University of Chicago has a very clear statement on academic freedom. How far it's meaningfully enforced is something that could be debated. But there is certainly a very good statement, uh, set of rules about, about academic freedom and free speech on campus. And a good question to ask is, why hasn't the institution that you're visiting adopted that code? Because relatively small numbers of American universities have copied Chicago. Uh, Stanford still doesn't have anything resembling it. So let, let's ask, why don't you have the Chicago code on, on free speech? That would be a good first question. I think parents uh, and, and students need to, to uh, look along and, and hard at the ways in which uh, terms like diversity, in, uh, inclusion, equity are used uh, as uh, vehicles for restricting uh, free speech and free debate. Have a look at the speakers that have visited a campus. That's a good indication of whether there's a really lively uh, climate of, of free speech. Are they all from one political side? Is there any representative quality to, to, to the mix? You know, universities have become ever uh, further skewed to the left over the last 20 years. The ratio of, uh, of Democrats to Republicans in faculty or liberals to conservatives. In fact, that ratio has gone up and up and up. Uh, and so it's important that uh, a university doesn't have a monoculture. A recent survey at Harvard revealed an absolutely staggering political monoculture amongst the incoming class. Uh, I, I don't think that's a healthy sign. And uh, it reminds me of Malcolm Gladbury's observation when he read about the University of Austin, which was if I were an undergraduate, if I were 18, I'd go there precisely because I'd be confident of encountering people I disagree with. What was fun for me about being an undergraduate was the arguments I used to have with the students who were on the left. But imagine going to university where everybody already agreed with you and be very 
tedious, whether you're a conservative or a liberal. So you want to look for real signs of intellectual or ideological diversity. Uh, and and that's, that's really something that gets forgotten. In all this talk of diversity, the one thing that seems not to be prioritized is ideological, political, or intellectual diversity. Look for that. If it's not there, what's the point? You're going to have four years of groupthink. Professor Ferguson, thank you. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for joining The Diplomat. It's been my pleasure. I hope I've been reasonably diplomatic. (laughs) You indeed have. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I was so pleased to have a conversation with Professor Neil Ferguson, a founding trustee of the University of Austin. What do you think? Do you think, as he says, that universities have ossified into havens for liberal intolerance and administrative overreach? Do you agree with how we got there? Is this liberal intolerance administrator and administrative overreach intolerable? Is it what parents want? Is it what students want? Take a listen. Let me know your thoughts. Reach out. If you found this podcast informative and interesting, perhaps even scary, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Do scroll back and listen to the great guests we had in 2021. And watch, we will have some amazing guests in 2022. Do follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. And do go to Amazon, please, and pre-order my book, In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East. Go to Amazon, search my name, Jason Greenblatt, or search In the Path of Abraham, and you will find it. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Newsweek.